Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode three of Towards a Repair Society, a podcast series covering Dr. Peter Eddy and Dr. Zusha Svetelsky's latest book, Repair. Today, we're talking about resilience and how broken systems return to normal. Let's begin at the object level, as usual. Last time, we talked about <coughs> maintaining stability in physical systems and in relationships. In fact, this pattern of feedback loops leading to stability appears very often in nature. One example is the human body's ability to maintain a stable temperature, and we have also used our understanding of feedback loops to improve people's health and well-being, such as intervening in the broken feedback loops in diabetes to prolong people's lives. And in the book, Peter Erdi goes even further than just observing where they turn up and what happens if they don't. Now, if we think of systems as cohesive groups of interrelated parts, Dr. Erdi, can you talk about how understanding feedback loops better has led to new general theories of the way systems work? Thank you, Jojo. I'm happy to be back and to have the conversation with you. And actually, this is my favorite topic now, feedback. And you should know that uh, feedback became a buzzword during the time when the scientific field uh, called cybernetics emerged. And, and there were two founding fathers. Uh, one is uh, Warren McCulloch, worked on the brain-computer uh, analogy, and the other is Norbert Wiener. <clears throat> I will speak about Wiener now, who was a, <clears throat> excuse me, was a prodigy mathematician. He was 18 when he received his PhD at Harvard in the field of philosophy of mathematics. While the basis of his reputation came due to his results in what we call pure mathematics, uh, including statistical theory of time series. Uh, he, he worked with MIT and he cooperated with electrical engineers on practical problems. In the early wartime, Wiener interest turned to the problem of destroying the enemy's airplanes. His goal was to design both an algorithm and the physical implementation of this algorithm by electric circuits. To help the transition from algorithm to physical implementation, he hired Julian Biglow, an MIT-trained electrical engineer, who later became uh, one of the protagonists of, of preparing the first computers designed by John von Neumann. So Wiener called the construction the anti-craft predictor. By applying his deep knowledge in the theory of random time series, his algorithm analyzed the zigzagging motion of the enemy plane and made predictions for its future position. <clears throat> and then later, uh, Wiener's mind connected the problem of hitting fast maneuverable bombers with ground-based artillery to the general theory of goal-seeking systems. It's, I would like to emphasize goal-seeking systems. And he saw that both animals and machines, goal-seeking systems, and cybernetics should be a general theory. Uh, and that was that communication and control in machines and animals. And Wiener soon made more steps as he got interested in the physiological, psychological, philosophical consequence of the predictor. First, they wrote a paper in 1943 by Arturo Rosenblut, <clears throat> was a Mexican, le leading Mexican physiologist, and Viglo, 
And the title of the paper was Behavior, Purpose, and Teleology, uh, published in the Philosophy of Science Journal. And it contains some novelty in terms of philosophy because he couldn't use, he, was, he didn't have to use Aristotle's famous concept uh, that uh, teleological causes. So that was uh, totally new. And the cybernetics became a bestseller based on that and popularized the concept of feedback loops. I see, that makes quite a bit of sense. It's interesting that systems can be thought of as having goals. And the system in question can be very simple, like a ball in a valley, where the goal is to keep the ball in the valley, or very complex, like an ecological system. And what you're talking about here with the uh, causation acting secularly, which was a pretty new idea, uh, can link back to when a cause leads to effects that also emphasize that initial cause. And so um, you have this positive feedback loop of things affecting each other. And so you don't have to have the cause starting from one particular point. It can start from anywhere in that cycle. So moving on to thinking about social systems, capitalism is a dominant economic system based on non-government people and groups owning the resources needed to produce stuff and then producing and selling that stuff for a profit. How can we use systems thinking to understand capitalism and stability? Yes, I, I, of course, it's a very difficult question and I'm far from being a political scientist, not speaking about a politician, but we know that Thomas Piketty had a bestseller, Capital in the 21st Century, uh, an open allusion to Marx's uh, capital. And he argues that the economic inequality in American society <clears throat> and possibly in other countries as well is even worse than people believe. And it will continue to worse under the condition of the present day capitalism. Um, I'm not in the position to answer, but probably uh, the problem of, of stability uh, is very important. Right, so it's <clears throat> we can think of capitalism as leading to some runaway processes, such as increasing economic inequality. But I also think that not all runaway processes while they're happening are equally bad. So capitalism may have led to much of the unprecedented prosperity of the modern world, with economic growth also happening at this exponential rate and bringing millions of people out of extreme poverty. So now it seems like capitalism is not a very stable system after all. It's got this runaway inequality, but also this runaway growth. And when systems are unstable, we tend to arrive at either a new normal or collapse. Do you have any more thoughts about that? Uh, yes, and uh, I'm inclining to believe that the capitalism showed some uh, signals of being a runaway process. But it's not necessarily that a runaway process does may not have a limit. And I'm a moderate optimistic. I emphasize both terms, optimistic and moderate. So I, I hope that it should be some social mechanisms to return to homeostasis. Uh, but of course, that is just a normative principle. We should have a mechanism. I'm afraid at this moment, it is too early to see how human society will implement such 
stabilizing mechanism. Right. So when we're talking about stabilizing mechanisms, we're talking about a move towards a good new normal, basically, if the system is one that tends to run out of control. So to restore positive conditions, either from this chaotic system or from a condition of collapse, I've heard this term resilience before. What does that mean in this systems context? Yes, so the term resilience appeared in the scientific literature in 1973, uh, exactly 50 years ago by Hollings in ecological context. But soon the applicability of the concept has been generalized and escalated in light of natural and social disasters. So a system is resilient if it continues to perform its function in face of adversity. And important to note that it occurs at many levels, from individual levels or personal levels to buildings, to small and larger communities. And most importantly, even at the global scale, so including our, the, our world itself. I see. So before we move <clears throat> about cultivating resilience in our societies and maybe as a response to capitalism and the throwaway society, let's think about things at the smaller level as we tend to do in this series. How do we cultivate resilience in ourselves? We must already do this to some degree when we face trauma or difficult situations, feel pain or anger. We mostly remain functional physically and mentally. So what's important for personal resilience? So Zsuzsa, my co-worker and friend, who is a social psychologist, taught me about some fundamental strategies. If we have vision and hope, we can cope better with stress, move beyond the problem and hand, find joy in life. I would like to emphasize again, vision and hope, and imagine a better future. Vision and hope help us become proactive make plans and prepare for anticipated situations. I can see how those psychological tools can help, but individual resilience must also be physical in some way. I think COVID showed us how people at different wealth levels were affected very differently. Absolutely. The COVID crisis made it very visible that for us, rich people, so middle-class uh, people in, in the wealthier part of the world. The economic effect was at most a temporary shock. By contrast, those without savings cannot cope with even a relatively small loss without fearing severe economic consequences. The resilience inequality uh, might be transferred, and I'm worried that it made, to income and later wealth inequality. This is a serious problem. I see. So it sounds like community resilience, what you're talking about with uh, a good distribution of wealth and power even and having enough savings across the whole of the community. And that sounds like it's pretty important for individual resilience. So what can you say about a person's surroundings? Uh, a person's surroundings are very important. And just like how infrastructure resilience can protect people in times of disaster, uh, 
And if you look at the resilience at the object level, Japanese engineering for earthquakes is a good example or, or, or building level. They set two thresholds for building resilience. First, for minor earthquakes, which occur ah, three or four times in a building's lifespan, should not result in any damage requiring repair. In other words, buildings should be sufficiently well-designed to avoid any functional loss. Number two, in the event of rare extreme earthquakes, buildings should be designed with the goal of avoiding human causalities. causalities. To achieve this goal, buildings should be able to absorb as much seismic energy as possible. Blocks of rubber may serve to provide seismic isolation. My understanding is that the Japanese engineers made a good progress. Yes, that's very clever. <clears throat> now that we've talked about individual resilience and this building or object level resilience, I think we're ready to go back to talking about community and societal resilience. Can we think of analogies between those other versions of resilience and community scale resilience? Uh, yes. So we are, we are parts of different communities and uh, resilience in communities uh, uh, should come from social structures, the strengths strength of social bonds and the fabric of community. And so we need gathering places for communities, dog parks, central mailbox locations, community bulletin boards. These resilient hubs uh, very important. And there are some resilient cities of course, it is just a question of definition. Barcelona, Manchester, Helsingborg, and Milan was labeled as, as resilient cities. And also important to speak about public education systems should include programs that promote an understanding of energy, water, and other natural resource systems, as well as the functioning of buildings and community infrastructures. So once again, thank you. That was an important question and topic. Yeah, I'm glad that such efforts at societal resilience exist at the community and the city scale. I'd also be excited about resilience at the global level now that we have global threats like climate change, nuclear war, and future pandemics. Yes, yes, yes. I, I promise to be optimistic, even moderately. So we need to be prepared for those two of nuclear war, climate change, maybe pandemics. So the pandemic left us with the question, how resilient human society really is? Did we show really resilience? So disruptions of the global supply chain are expected to last for a number of years. And despite the quick vaccine development after COVID, we still have dangerous vaccine skepticism and we know that still the degree of vaccination in Africa is still low. Uh, I, I read a book, Marcus Brunner Mayer, uh, with the title, The Resilient Society. But he suggests we need a new social contract. It might be true. <clears throat> I see. So this kind of brings us back a little bit to what you were talking about on the individual level, about vision and hope and how we need to hope that 
we can turn the global systems that we have to be more resilient. And we also need the vision that we should do so and the organization to start doing that. I think some other valuable ways to prepare might include working to foresee what risks might come about and setting up the incentives and decision-making systems to prepare for them in advance, even if it's costly. But of course, there are a lot of the concrete implementations, which will be specific to what hazard we're facing. Now, moving on, uh, now that we know how systems naturally stay stable or can be engineered for resilience, let's talk about the future of resilience and repair. What trends do you foresee and what should we do differently? So, Jojo, I mentioned social contract, and I believe one example for having a new social contract is the, the movement, what is called right to repair, fight to repair. And so we would like to see uh, an, this, an age of transition from the throwaway society to repair society. And we touched the, this, on these concepts in the earlier episodes. And I think a fight for a repair society has <clears throat> started at least two different levels. At the mental levels, we should relearn what was known and not more or less forgotten. Our first reaction in times of crisis should be about how to repair or save something. For example, not giving up of, on broken belongings or the disintegrated environment. At the legal level, the right to repair movement has become stronger. Uh, new, new deals happened in the European Union, and I believe about 20 states in the United States have some legal agreement about the right of the consumer uh, to repair their devices. I learned recently an example in Colorado where a wheelchair repair law is giving people access to software and settings that only manufacturers used earlier. But there is a war and the war is, war is not yet over. Okay, well, thank you for those valuable insights. Uh, today, we've learned a lot about how to cultivate resilience on individual building or object and community levels. We've talked about runaway systems and perhaps capitalism is one of them and how that might turn out. We've also talked about the future of resilience and what to do about global threats um, and how this fight is happening at both this individual level and this legal level. So that'll be it for today, but we have one more episode coming up shortly. Yes. Thank you, Jojo. I enjoyed the conversation. And just for the future, we decided that we will have uh, one more uh, recording and I'm looking forward to work on the script of the fourth episode. Thank you, Jojo, bye-bye. Yes, goodbye, thank you.